Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. everyone. Thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're discussing the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Here's what you need to know. Following the American Civil War, the United States of America entered the Gilded Age, a period of time when the political and financial elite became enormously wealthy on the backs of the working class who labored for starvation-level wages in dangerous conditions. During a time of rapid industrialization and an economic boom, the railroad industry exploded, becoming America's second-largest employer. Railroad construction was a huge expense and had to be built on speculation with the help of loans and land grants. When one banking firm filed for bankruptcy, a ripple effect flung America into the worst financial depression in its history until that point. For the next several years, railroad companies continued to whittle down their workers' salaries. In January 1877, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad signed off on a 10% wage cut, its second 10% cut that year. After years of deteriorating conditions, the workers had had enough. In Martinsburg, West Virginia, B&O workers decoupled trains so they couldn't leave the yard and walked off the job. The governor called in a local militia who attempted to command the trains, but strikers arrived to thwart their plans. One striker was killed and a militia member was wounded. 
the governor called on President Hayes to send in federal troops. On July 16, a cattle train's crew walked off the job, leaving the beef to roast in the heat. Then a brakeman led workers in decoupling trains so they couldn't leave the yard. Police moved in, but were driven off. West Virginia Governor Henry M. Matthews called up the local militia. 200 soldiers arrived with bayonets to get the trains up and running, but the strikers began a low-grade guerrilla conflict. Railroad workers, joined now by miners, iron workers, and boatmen, hid under bridges or behind blind curves, emerging to ambush trains with stones or block the tracks with debris. The strike in West Virginia inspired hundreds of others around the country to join the labor movement. In Maryland, protesters by the thousands were confronted by the National Guard. The crowd of factory workers escalated into a mob and soldiers killed 10 people. The railroad rebellion chugged its way to Pittsburgh, the country's industrial core. The Pennsylvania Railroad had ordered that all trains go in double headers, which meant that one crew was forced to do the work of two. When police and local militias failed to quell the strikers, the National Guard was summoned from Philadelphia. Heavily armed with artillery and a Gatling gun, the troopers arrived in a train pummeled by stones and chunks of coal during their journey. When they arrived to find a mob of about 6,000 people, the soldiers killed 20 people in cold blood. Enraged by the killings, the mob looted gun shops and set fire to freight cars before rolling them downhill towards the roundhouse where the soldiers had sheltered. By the next morning, the soldiers had no choice but to flee. Instead of negotiating better wages for his workers, Pennsylvania Railroad President Thomas Alexander Scott said that the strikers should be given, quote, a rifle diet for days and see how they like that kind of bread. Strikes hit Chicago next. Leaders of the Working Men's Party were addressing a crowd of 30,000 people in downtown Chicago when violence broke out, resulting in the death of 30 people. Finally, in St. Louis, a relatively peaceful general strike effectively shut down the city. Word spread of a, quote, American commune, which called for an equal division of both labor and profit. This peaceful strike was far more threatening to industrial tycoons than a mob, and martial law was declared and arrests were made. Whether the workers participated in guerrilla tactics, planned strikes, violent confrontation, or peaceful protest, the railroad barons and National Guard refused to back down. The Great Railroad Strike of 1877 fizzled out only a few months after it began. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats In Cumberland, Maryland, at least 10 people in a crowd were killed by militiamen, including a newsboy and a 16-year-old student. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania saw the worst violence. The National Guard killed 20 people, inciting strikes to set fires and damaged 39 buildings, 104 locomotives, and 1,245 freight and passenger cars. The next day, the National Guard killed another 20 people, including women and at least three children. More than 100,000 workers participated in the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. At its peak, more than half of the trains on the country's railroads came to a halt. By the time the strikes were over, about 1,000 people had gone to jail and some 100 people had been killed. It was the first national strike in American history with strikes in Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Missouri. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. And our very special guest today is writer-actor Ali Vingiano. Hi, Ali. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. We're very excited to have you here. Allie is a writer on The Morning Show. She's also starred in the indie movie The End of Us, which was just at South by Southwest. And we were just talking right before this, we started recording. Allie was mentioning that she's a union rep for the WGA. So could there be a more perfect guest? Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel like you handle those responsibilities uh, with grace and aplomb? Um, you know... <laughs> What are those responsibilities? It's a lot of responsibilities. Yes, as a, as a union rep, what, what are your responsibilities? Well, I shouldn't say I'm... So 
I'm a captain. I'm a union captain. Oh, and there's right. different yes. levels. Yes. There's yeah. different levels. So Familiar. like there's captains, then there's the members that you vote on. And mm. like, that's like a, a whole process. And I'm not, I'm a, I, no one's voted for me. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, they voted for you in your writer's room. And... That's true. They did. <laughs> they did. Um, and so, yeah, what happened was I, I, the first use the first time, the, basically when I was a baby story editor for the morning show, they were like, someone used to be a union rep. And I had listened to a podcast where they were like, you should always offer to do the things nobody wants to do. So I was like, I'll do it right away. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, I really liked it. And I liked being part of the union and I liked being in community with these other writers and finding out the issues. And it was a way for me to learn also about the process because I was just starting out. And it was also around the time when we were all having to fire our agents, which was like totally insane because so many people felt helpless and alone and like they were just getting started and now they were back zero um so it was like a huge like crash course in being a representative for the wga and i just went to the captain's meetings and tried to answer questions for everybody and there were times when i had to deal with as i so then i continued to be stay a captain because i liked it and then there were times (laughs) where i had to like solve issues like people not getting paid Mm. um, on time or at all. People were missing like hundreds of thousands of dollars in certain situations. Um, So it's important to have these union reps. They actually serve a purpose and make sure that people are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The like tiered structure of reps is very important also because there's huge issues that affect everybody. And then there's issues in every room um, from discrimination to pay issues to people not understanding contracts and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So Captain Allie yeah. um, is she joining made, us she today. She made us talk, call her Captain Allie. Yeah. You'll put that on my bio when you release Absolutely. it. Right? Okay, thank yeah. you. Thank you. We'll link yeah. that. Um, <laughs> Allie, we'd like to start off the show by asking our guests, what is something that is recently alarming you? What is something that's keeping you up at night? Oh, oh man. I love this response. Everyone has the same kind of like, oh. <laughs> well, I, cause I listened to the podcast and I knew this was coming and then I totally forgot about it. I was like, I have to think about that <laughs> answer. Out. And then I just like didn't at all. Um, I mean, look, there's no, I, I can't imagine having the, uh, like the initial thing I'm thinking, it's probably the most boring thing that everybody says. Go for it. Because it's climate change. <laughs> like, yeah. Because it's, it's a bummer. So hot, it's impossible to go outside. It's like mm-hmm. I cannot live in my home. And it's weird because I have I'm very um traveling is like a huge part of my life. I love to travel and um I host these like retreats abroad and I'm feeling like this weird guilt of like the personal impact I have on the environment mm. versus the fact that I know that my own choices are meaningless. Mm. Um, so it's just dealing with a lot of those issues that it is, it's hard for me. I'm going to yeah. say, well, what kind um, of retreats do you do abroad? Now I'm curious. <laughs> <laughs> They're um, writing and yoga retreats. So uh, I'm amazing. also um, a yoga teacher, but I don't actually teach the yoga. It's just important that the spiritual element of it and the grounding element has been really important to my writing. So I teach the writing, someone else does the yoga and you basically meditate and do yoga hmm. in the morning and then write in the afternoons. And um, yeah, so it's something I love and it brings me so much joy and brings others so much joy, but it's also hard right. to be like, let's all get on a plane. And like, right. go. Yeah. <laughs> so, And they're all held in sustainable facilities, but it's just, you know, just something it's, that's constantly right. on my mind is how much can I actually do? And right. it's impossible. It feels impossible to get around. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you got to tell your students that they really need to execute on these drafts of scripts. Like, <laughs> it all depends on yeah, the your outcome, carbon right? footprint because the carbon, <laughs> foot, your, your guilty feeling about flying to these locations, I think, mm-hmm. will, it'll, as long as the scripts are good, it'll be, an, you'll be doing that good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure that they know that if they don't finish their drafts, yeah. they're making the world a worse place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's the that's moral good. of these programs. Yeah. I was going to say, don't print until you think it's ready. That yeah. was, yeah. was going to be my Oh, just never print. Never. And yeah. if they're writing stuff about like burning down forests and just wasting water, like if that's in the script, maybe tell them to cut that scene. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
cut, yeah, yeah. Let's cut that scene. Um, okay. This is now, it feels like a really hard task for me to do. Um, well, do you want me to say a second? No, I'll give you the task. No, I, <laughs> no, I, I'm Please. dying I to this. be saved. Dying. <laughs> What was, how were you going to help me transition? I was just going to say that ultimately what I come back to is that I, as an individual have no ability Mm. to make changes unless these huge corporations actually have to stop dumping fossil fuels and into the environment and drilling. And the fact that these corporations, and yes, we have this bill, but it only, I mean, and it's just, it's great, but it's not far enough. And so it's like, until that happens, someone else, that plane's going to go, even if it's half full, that mm. plane's going to take off. Right. And ultimately, what does the individual, what power do we have in the face of these massive corporations that are supported by the government? Bless, Allie, bless. The individual, not Organization, much, we've got to organize. Exactly. The, organ- yes. the ability to organize and be a collective is very powerful. Strikes can be very powerful. We did it. Let's jump right in. Perhaps learning about these historical fights, battles mm-hmm. against big corporation, sure. um, maybe that will help us yeah. understand at least how we can uh, be useful and helpful. You know and what else is good for the environment is yes. public transportation. That's true. <laughs> like trains? Great. I mean, oh, yeah. Allie can't stop <laughs> transitioning. <laughs> Allie can't stop. <laughs> um choo choo let's put up (laughs) sorry financial panic of 1873 and this is from a pbs article since the end of the civil war railroad construction in the united states had been booming and banks and other industries were putting their money in railroads so when the banking firm of j cook and company a firm heavily invested in railroad construction closed its stores A major economic panic swept the nation. The railroad industry involved a huge amount of money and risk. Building tracks where land had not yet been cleared or settled required land grants and loans that only the government could provide. The nation's first transcontinental railroad had been completed in 1869. Entrepreneurs planned a second called the North Pacific. Jay Cook's firm was the financial agent in this venture and poured money into it. On September 18, the firm realized that it had overextended itself and declared bankruptcy. Marrying the firm's collapse, many other banking firms and industries did the same. The collapse was disastrous for the nation's economy. A startling 89 of the country's 364 railroads crashed into bankruptcy. In 1877, Northern Railroads, still suffering from the financial panic of 1873, began cutting salaries and wages. The cutbacks prompted strikes, violence uh, with lasting consequences. So this is kind of the context. This is, right. I mean, we're talking about uh, four quick years math. Earlier. Four, four years. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Thank you for jumping in, Chris. No, I had a calculator out. Uh, <laughs> so I was ready. <laughs> Uh, but I guess this would be, would this be considered a bubble? I wonder, I wonder if the expert, if an expert would be able to, because in 73, I guess you have just so many people trying to get into a railroad game in the middle of the 19th mm, century. Mm-hmm. And I guess this was a popping of the bubble of some sorts. They That's, were overextended. Yeah. I, I, I'm not an expert, but I, that feels like a, uh, a, a good way of thinking about it, at least in, in our current, um, uh, yeah terms it definitely felt like it was growing rapidly Mm -hmm. um people weren't there was no infrastructure to kind of sustain the growth yeah Um, well and and banks i mean you know like somewhere in here is this like concept of like too big to fail like these banks which take what you give them your money and they can take these like really crazy financial risks, but there's, you know, who knows how much they were being regulated back then. So they were able to completely overextend themselves and like practice this like really risky behavior that basically collapsed. And it doesn't just affect the bank. It affects everyone who's investing in that bank. Like there's some, there's something around there, maybe lack of regulation. Crazy how it, this has happened again and again and again. Mm -hmm. It's just the cycle and nothing changes. Um, well, because hearing this, it just seems like something I've experienced now twice in my lifetime. Right. right. 
Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't realize that I had no idea about this economic crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, it feels like every economic, so there's so many economic crises that have happened in, in American history that we don't know about because this, whatever the next one is, is the one that's the it's biggest. The next big so it's one. only getting <laughs> yes. worse. <laughs> you think this one's bad, just you wait. I mean, I guess we know about the 1929 uh, crash, right? That's sure. that's the one we learn about. Sure. Because it ruined Great Gatsby's party, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we important. don't learn about why it happened. We, I mean, we just know the stock market crashed and that it was people were, that it was a Great Depression and we were all, everyone was poor and it was a really hard time. But we don't talk about the, the how, how many choices were made by our government right, to allow right, this to happen. Right. right. What were the practices? What was going on? What were the business practices? And what was the uh, regulation that w- w- the failure in like regulation mm-hmm. that allowed for this kind of, uh, yeah. uh, this kind of event. So do we put regulation well, on the board? Lack of regulation for yeah. sure. And I, I, maybe this will help bring some clarity um, because I want to put up, a few things. Okay. Okay. We'll talk about them one by one. Yeah. First, let's talk about the poor wages and the greedy bosses. This is according to journalist Ryan Zickgraf, who wrote, The situation reached a boiling point in 1877 when railroad magnates colluded to slash workers' wages twice, despite raking in huge profits. Shareholders and managers did just fine, but ordinary workers' pay was cut by up to half. Uh, This is from Digital History. In 1877, Northern Railroads began cutting salaries and wages. In May of 1877, the Pennsylvania Railroad, the nation's largest railroad company, cut wages by 10 percent and then in June by another 10 percent. Following suit, the Baltimore and Ohio line cut the wages of all employees, making more than a dollar a day by 10 percent, more than a dollar a day. (laughs) Um, Then the Pennsylvania Railroad announced that it would double the length of all eastbound trains from Pittsburgh with no increase in the size of their crews. Uh, Philip S. Foner wrote in his book, railroads reduced workers' salary by an average of 21 to 37 percent, although food prices had declined only 5 percent. The Baltimore and Ohio, the B&O, was particularly egregious by slicing pay up to 50 percent. So there it's it's. There's clearly a recession. Um, inflation is high. We can all relate. Yeah. And they're slashing salaries, and mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the 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 food prices are stable. So they're not really going down. So yeah. cost of living is not going not down changing, at the moment. Right. Not, it's not changing. It's a tough spot. These workers were in a really difficult position and of course none of these bosses were the ones who were getting any of the pay cuts Mm. no Mm -mm. and it's yeah go on no i just it all sounds so it sounds so familiar it's like even right now with like the soaring gas prices on all these Mm -hmm. huge companies making like crazy record profits while the entire Mm -hmm. like country is like stress about fording gasoline so they can go to work, but like they have this record breaking profit and it's just like, right. hmm, that's odd. Why is that? Like, well, it's like so great for them because they're like, Ooh, people are talking about inflation. People expect prices to go right. up. So, so we we'll can just keep doing this and we can keep cutting prices and say, Oh, it's such a hard economic time. And we're just going to rein in all of this money and like all of the profits and, and people, are being pushed to a point. I think they'll keep doing this. I mean, I'm talking about now, obviously, but like at the same time, like in 18, when was this? 77. Oh, this what? Okay. Now we're in 77. Um, Well, 73 to 77. Yeah. Right. It's how far can we go until it's so unlivable that we have to find that we face a consequence. Right. Um, Because like, yeah, they're just making so much money cutting 10, 10 10% if you're making a dollar. That is so significant. I know. <laughs> I, like people don't like you just don't have anywhere to there's nowhere to stretch, you know, like there's no way to reorganize your when you're when you're living hand to mouth and you literally are already at capacity. There's not there's nothing to lose. 
Mm-hmm. I'm curious what the um, exchange uh, or the, the words not exchange, like how much would a dollar be in today's currency? Mm-hmm. Just right. to get I an understanding. Um, because the ones I want to put up next are making a lot more than a dollar a day. Uh, and those are uh, the robber barons. So let's <laughs> put those up on the board. Says about 30 bucks, 28, 22. That's nothing. Right. Wow. A day? $30 yeah. a day for an eight hour day? Yeah. Good luck. Yikes. Yeah. And I wonder if they were eight, eight, eight hour days. Probably a 12. Yeah, you're right. Right. Um, Robert, when did, when did, the, when did strikes for the eight hour day happen? Do we know? Good question. Because that happened by strike as well. Was that like in the 1900s, though? Was that like after? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't this know. is where this is where we start going. I don't know. Great question. I'll tell you what I do know is the definition of a robber baron. Tell me. <laughs> it's a pejorative term for one of the powerful 19th century American industrialists and financiers who made fortunes by monopolizing huge industries through the formation of trusts, engaging in unethical business practices, exploiting workers, and paying little heed to their customers or competition. Of the four prominent were J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, John D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie. Mm, sounds, sounds like it was familiar. their fault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, Carnegie in, Hall. Yeah. Right. Anyway, in all of these these podcasts, there the the one that of these the robber barons that keeps coming up is Rockefeller. Mm. And it seems like he was a key player. Uh, which so let's put Rockefeller up on the board. Great. And this is from Britannica. In 1870, John D. Rockefeller and a few associates, a group that included American financier Henry M. Flagler, incorporated the Standard Oil Company in Ohio. So just uh, uh, to clarify, Rockefeller was an oil tycoon. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. his business was oil. Because of Rockefeller's emphasis on economic operations, Standard prospered and began to buy out its competitors until by 1872 it controlled nearly all the refineries in Cleveland. That fact enabled the company to negotiate with railroads for favored rates on its shipments of oil. It acquired pipelines and terminal facilities, purchased competing refineries in other cities, and vigorously sought to expand its market in the United States and abroad. So, I'm like, well, okay, what, what is the connection here with Rockefeller? As I dug a little deeper, okay. um, there's a man, another very wealthy man, Thomas Scott. He was the president, I believe, of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Pennsylvania, so Thomas Scott and the Pennsylvania Railroad had a history of clashing with Rockefeller. In 1877, the Pennsylvania Railroad operating through a subsidiary company, the Empire Transportation Company, bought up several small refineries and operated them in competition with Standard Oil. So so railroad guy is getting into oil. Hmm. The railroad gave preferential freight rates to its Empire refineries to give them an advantage over Rockefellers. In the spring of 77, two-thirds of the oil the Pennsylvania Railroad Company carried was still coming from Standard, although clearly the company intended to make their own refinery output grow as fast as possible. Rockefeller, finding out what was happening, soon boycotted the Pennsylvania Railroad Company, shutting down all his refineries in Pittsburgh. The loss of Standard Oil's business forced Scott to reduce the number of trains in operation to cut costs Scott laid off hundreds of workers and cut wages by 20% of those he's still employed. Um, And then that's when he started to um, uh, uh, make the uh, longer hours Mm. and implement the longer hours. Gotcha. So it was basically two rich guys. Yes. Struggling over this. (laughs) Yeah. Duking it out with the lives of their employees in in the economy. Exactly. Wanting to make more money because Rockefeller had um, and and he soon, I believe it's in 79 or in 81. He has 90 percent. He has a monopoly over 90 percent of the oil 
in in the country. Mm -hmm. And that's when uh, regulations start coming about. Um, like, hey, well, monopoly. Yeah, we, it's like you can't have a monopoly kinda... like that. <laughs> To I'm assuming that, this is when the game Monopoly was also invented. Sure. Because right? B&O, Railroad, uh, right, right. like uh, the Pennsylvania Railroad, all railroad uh, <laughs> spots you can buy on the and board. And if you own all four of them, you get a lot if someone lands on those railroads. Yes. This to me also speaks to not uh, Monopoly for sure uh, and like competition, like, like almost like irrational competition. But this idea of like consumption, like I feel like so many... Like business, I feel like the the biz, the basic business model is like, how do we keep growing? Like, how do we mm. keep consuming and getting bigger and bigger? And it's like, it, it, we live on like a finite planet. Like eventually, mm -hmm. we can't just like can keep infinitely growing and getting bigger and bigger and, and squashing the other guy. Like uh, to me, the, the, the system of that doesn't seem sustainable. Clayton, where it's like we have to Clayton eat everybody a, else. Clayton, I think you're bringing up the big C yet again. Clayton oh, loves no. to put capitalism up on the board. <laughs> well, I was going to suggest we called it Gilded Age capitalism. Okay. Mm. Yeah, because it's a very specific brand, isn't it? Like the opulence and like the excess of it all. How is it? How do you think it's different than what we experience now? Not to mm. like bring up a huge tangent, but. Um, I think probably not, <laughs> but I'm just thinking of like how unregulated things were. I mean, not to say that they're not, they're now regulations like got it all under control, uh, but they're like unions were not really a thing. Um, at I least we've we, made strides in that direction. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. I feel like, like we've been able to reframe the narrative too. Like back then it was like, oh, if I could just like pull my self up by my bootstraps i too could be the rich guy everyone aspired to that and now we kind of have a sense that there's not really like a thing as an ethical billionaire and like most of the people understand like that that was built on the backs of everyone it wasn't just some like self-made man who had a great idea and became you know, like jeff bezos you know what i mean like, completely completely yeah i just wonder how much to a worker in 1877 it would feel to uh low wage worker now like right. i just feel like you're right that the reg there it, it is more regulated now but because of so much corruption basically <laughs> corruption and like crony capitalism and like the lack of um citizens what am i saying citizen organization you mean and no labor? no no like the uh. the supreme court like the fact that like there's so much money in politics yes like, yes although it, there is, is citizens yeah. united although there yes, is yes. more um regulation it's also regulation that benefits the corporations like yes, it's regulation yeah. that's yes. like oh we're gonna regulate you but like don't worry you can still drill wherever you want like right right but you're it, it is different it's just well still it, sucks. It, but i i take your point in that are the feelings different though like <laughs> isn't mm -hmm. how does it feel to a, a low-wage worker right now it's well that's why they're organizing like all the yeah. uh, things they're trying to the at least the amazon uh warehouses yeah, are which i think is amazing yeah and they're finally yeah. starting to break through it was so hard because of all the like anti-organizing organizing like stuff that they were getting when they would show up to work which is not yeah. technically something i to found do. interesting um in in reading about this um especially uh rockefeller and you know, the, or the robber barons. This is according to Britannica. It has been argued that these capitalist pioneers were the antecedents of the organized crime that emerged in the United States during the Prohibition era in 1920 to 33. The robber barons transformed the wealth of the American frontier into vast financial empires, amassing their fortunes by monopolizing essential industries. In turn, these monopolies were built upon the liberal use of tactics that are today the hallmark of organized crime, intimidation, violence, corruption, conspiracies, and fraud. Totally. So it's interesting to think about them in that sense, right? As a mob boss. Right. Totally. Like that term. <laughs> it's, I mean, robber baron, even the name, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it seems like a mob boss. <laughs> yeah. Now, I want to talk about the Pinkertons because I always want to put, also want to put that up on the board. This is uh, in a Teen Vogue article. Ooh. Journalist and labor activist Kim Kelly wrote, 
The Pinkerton National Detective Agency was founded as a private police force in Chicago in 1850 and quickly expanded its reach. Its detectives initially focused on catching thieves and burglars, but soon became the bane of the labor movement for their work as enthusiastic, vicious strike breakers. Throughout the, civil, uh, throughout the Civil War era and in the decades after, Pinkerton operatives left their bloody mark on strikes, protests, and massacres and gained a ruthless reputation for protecting the interests of capital by any means necessary. During the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, Pinkertons worked as infiltrators in a months-long open conflict that left over 100 people dead. This is according to journalist Ryan Zickrafts, who says the capitalist class was mortified by the strike. Business owners dreaded the possibility of an American version of the Paris Commune, which shocked Europe just six years prior. Alan Pinkerton called the strike a monster riot in his 1878 book. A 19th century spy master, Pinkerton's union, uh, Pinkerton's union busting detective agency became hired for guns for wealthy businessmen looking for protection after the summer of 1877. So they saw what happened in Europe. I'm sort of just skimming through this Paris commune. I mean, we're going to need a... There was a lot of fear, I think, at the moment. Mm -hmm. It it just feels so... So familiar. Familiar, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what I read? (laughs) Yes, tell us... That um, just speaking of the familiarity of it, um, that, you know, Starbucks has been striking all summer and apparently they just the person that they just hired used to work at Pinkerton. Her I her um, Mm. her like so Pinkerton still exists. Now she's the manager of global (sighs) intelligence for retail ops and her prior job on LinkedIn was intelligent analyst Pinkerton comprehensive risk management full time. So it's like, it's familiar and it's literally, I mean, no, like she's not going to kill 20 people like in <laughs> in the riots of, or, or the, I don't even know what to call it, but the strikes of 1877. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So you still, yeah. what you have is, is fascinating. And then you just have these corporations that are willing to spend mm-hmm. so much money to prevent organi- organized labor, right? And mm-hmm. all the organized, all organizing does is it gives you a seat at the table. You just get to sit there and negotiate. So the corporation is still going to get to negotiate wages, but they're so nervous about just having to do that mm-hmm. that they want to break up the organization efforts, which is lame, Because dude. of... Well, and it's like, why? For profit. And profit to who? Right. Your shareholders who are Control, just... In, yeah, in, investors. Like, you, if you're... If your main concern is to your shareholders who just like want to make money that sits there, money making money, and not to actual people, like this to me speaks to a lack of empathy or true understanding uh-huh. of what yeah. it's like to, to live the average life of like your average worker. Yeah, yeah exactly. Completely. And hey, I've, I, I've gone to a Starbucks. I've had a subpar barista before, okay? Yeah. I've had my <laughs> coffee come in and it wasn't exactly how I ordered it. Okay? They've spelled we- my name so many times. Oh, yes. I can imagine. <laughs> You know, so we're not saying that some of these employees aren't, you know, up to, per, are perfect all the time. Are making perfect coffee every day? Are making day? Po- perfect okay. coffee. But, they, but they they're still people, yeah. to Clayton's point. Well, they're they're putting in the hours. They're putting in the, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think no. it, this they, is... They shouldn't starve because, no. uh, yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's also just like, sorry, go ahead, Clayton. No, no, you go. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in after you. It's just all under the guise of, especially in 1877, of like the American dream of like, you have to work hard and like, that's how we make it. And like, it's like that just like drove the, you know, when these corporate, when these huge corporation heads were like, we're going to make a billion dollars and you're going to make a dollar. It's like, and that's how it should be because I've done it and you can do it too. And uh, it survived in, I would say there's a conscious shift happening but it has not actually happened because we haven't actually seen it affect workers yet right. but um it's just i don't know it's like yeah it's th- sustained that- us for so long right sorry go ahead clayton wanted to i just want to this is what i want to say that and take it for what's <laughs> worth i want to pull back and go really macro here mm-hmm. okay i think this is all like this is human nature we are mm-hmm. we are barbarians 
who are self selfish. Wow. We, we come from that. And what, what do we need to survive? And business is just the way, like the the way that businesses are run now is how we as barbarians has evolved. So our barbarianism has just become a little bit more. It's refined. Yes. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, we are, we have evolved and we are a little bit more complex, but like our inherent nature is to like win, win or take all. Right. Wow. We like to believe that we're like, you know, I want to believe that like we, there is some kind of exceptionalism to uh, in humanity, but like, really, I just feel like we keep showing ourselves time and time again, like as, as one democracy or one like big empire falls, like we just keep messing it up because we can't not one at all. Wow. To the other powerful stuff. Yes. Allie. I'm, I'm talking so much, but (laughs) no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, argue the opposite. I right. don't think it's our human Love. nature to okay, be barbarians. Good. I think it's our human nature nature to be in community, right? Like we came we 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 began on this earth as like nomads who traveled together and like women had one role and men had another and like we all like were working together raising our kids together. We were working together to for for one goal. And sure. I think the industrial revolution where some people learned that they could get rich really fast, mm. basically just like fucked everything. And it's the fault of a few. They planted really that rich people who got really, really greedy and learned that they could take advantage of human nature mm. and our desire to like support one another to, I don't know. I, I, don't Although know. I, will I haven't say fully that thought this out, but no, <laughs> I, I, I think it's a lot of, of a few. It makes a lot of sense, but I will say that it has been happening in different versions before the Industrial Revolution. You know, we can take royalty as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. We we can all use the the Catholic Church, religion. Um, But that's also, like, I would say the fault of a few. Yes. But I don't know. No, I agree. I agree. I think think it's... I it's our think, struggle. It's our it's our human struggle. I do, and think, I think like, that some people are more prone to it than yeah. others, <laughs> um, and they will take advantage of that. Well, it, you guys having those two perspectives makes me think of the the what is it the fable or the tale of the two wolves? Right, there are two wolves that are always fighting. One is the darkness and despair, and one is light and hope. I feel like in each person, there's mm. the capability there's of yes. of of being. Of being good and thinking of others, or yeah. of or of being evil and being greedy, mm. um, and whichever one you feed or whatever, that's the one that grows. Yeah, and I think that I we agree can, with that. Yeah, we we and we can um, maybe see who those people are when you play a game of Monopoly. Mm. And they can, <laughs> you can differentiate. Oh, God, I think that's true. actually um, well. We it's so a- real because I always lose Monopoly, and my brother, who's like super like successful ad dude, like it's just like let's go, let's go, like here's yeah. the money, like I fucking won. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm such a sucker. I want to. I want to because this is really great stuff. But I want to just cherry pick some of the things we've just talked about yes, over the past few minutes and put them up uh-huh. on the board. So Clayton mentioned bar- barbarism, a hu- <laughs> human or, or, or barbarism, or the or I guess the inherent nature of humans as being greedy or something mm, like that. Human greed. Okay, human greed. I think, and Ali brought up a great point, which is what we can put up just the industrial revolution in general, mm-hmm. which was yeah. a a way of ratcheting up sort of human competition, right? I mean, would you say, Ali, that's accurate? Yeah. Is there a way to, I mean, how do you guys want to put that? I'm just sort of... I, I think just the industrial revolution. Okay, we'll put up the industrial rev. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I know that we're running out of time, so yes. I, there's two things I want to put up, uh, state sanctioned violence. Yes. Huge, important one. So journalist Ryan Zickgraf, Zickgraf wrote, when the industrialists couldn't pressure their employees back to work, they called on politicians to use every lever of state sanctioned violence possible police, the national guard and federal troops in Baltimore. A crowd had gathered and began throwing rocks at a militia. The troopers responded by firing muskets into the crowd and attacking the bayonets. At least 10 people were killed, including a barefoot newsboy in shirt sleeves, a 16 year old boy, a 16 year old photography student and a 19 year old baker. Days later, the state militia fired on a gathering of strikers and their families in Pittsburgh, killing 20. Among the strikers were women and children. 
By August 1st, 1877, the great upheaval had been all but snuffed out and nearly all trains had resumed running. In addition to local and state police and informal militias, President Rutherford B. Hayes had commanded almost 60,000 federal troops into action in 10 states. Over 100 people were killed and thousands injured. Big Railroad fired employees who went on strike and refused to rescind the pay cuts of others, leaving the strikers utterly defeated and demoralized. Jeez. Uh, Brutal. Not a... So put Hayes up there. Yes. He sent 60,000 federal troops. And I believe that after this strike was when uh the the federal government upped their either uh funding or yes i think i believe it was the funding of national the national guard that's when it became a well a very well funded organization because they felt like they needed to have them on standby in case this were to happen again wow cool that's a bummer. Doesn't it that feel like such a friggin' bummer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge Be- bummer. Because these men and women and the people who are fighting for better um, wages, they're Americans too. Yeah. They're just like livable, <laughs> just foreign just existence. existence. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. So who is who And is they're the fighting feder- for a very American thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the right to make... Yeah. So yes. Go ahead. Yes. No, the right to... Yeah. Make a to, living. A, to a living and to dignity, living with dignity. No. Um, so who are these federal troops like protect? Like who are they protecting if not the people? Right. Are, Good question. I don't know. Pay right. Taxes They're, and, it's which people are they protecting? Right. Yeah. Right. They're protecting think about that. the wealthy. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was very clear. And here we, as we know, property is the most important thing. Right. Protecting property over human life. Hmm. And it's interesting because I was, you know, in 1877, they talk about um, the looting of stores. And it's it's still interesting to me, like, how much people care about that over the loss of mm-hmm. life. Right. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's just because you can then blame, be like, oh, look, they were doing something wrong, too. But, um, or just yeah. Like the, yeah. Human dignity. Like, these people literally are just trying to afford, like, food to live. And it's mm-hmm. like, we don't care about that. You, you broke our store. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, well, sure. you know, it's also press what gets talked about, right? I mean, we've seen today, you know, peace, mostly peaceful protests, but then, you know, uh, you'll see some, some little, some fires break mm-hmm. out at certain, whatever. It's so, it's about how things are covered too. Yeah. How they now, brand it. I, last thing I want to put up on the board uh, outside agitators. This is from Digital History. Native born Americans tended to blame the labor violence on foreign agitators. Published in 1877, the annals of the great strikes in the United States stated, quote, it was evident that there were agencies at work outside the workingmen's strike. The people engaged in these riots were not railroad strikers. The internationalists had something to do with creating scenes of bloodshed. The scenes in the city of Baltimore were not unlike those which characterized the events of the city of Paris during the reign of the commune in 1870. In June 20, on June 21st, 1877, the Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, 10 Irish immigrants were hanged for terrorism and murder in the region's coal fields. According to the prosecution, the men were members of a secret organization, the Molly Maguires. This is from an NPR interview with Professor Peniel Joseph. The whole trope of outside agitator has a long history in American history, and it's been used by everybody from plantation owners in the South during antebellum slavery to big corporate industry magnates. Basically, it suggests that whatever conflict, political rebellion or demonstration is happening, it is not organically homegrown. It is not authentic that none of these troubles would have happened if not for outside agitators. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, labor struggles and labor strife was a big moment for the use of, quote, outside agitator. It allowed really morally reprehensible acts of violence against labor activists. This narrative of the outside agitator, I was just kind of blown away by by how much it sounds like, you know, whenever anything really happens in this country, um, it's blamed on outside forces, like off the top of my head, you know, 
the Ru- Russia during the elections. You know, it's mm. like something is happening here in the United States and all of the energy is put, well, these other people are are infiltrating us or right. they're somehow or causing... it's Antifa. It's not people rioting right. in the Capitol building. It's Antifa. It's like, right. It's an easy it's like a right. lack, It's a lack of... Um, accountability. Accountability is the word. Yeah. Yeah. It's this like elusive thing that is blame. Like we can just blame on this like it's like the smoke monster in lost mm. it's like ooh, something's happening right. but like we can't point that we have there's no evidence we can't point to anything but like let's blame them yeah yeah very I, I watched lost recently sorry oh. <laughs> I got have you ever seen it before? oh my god it's still still so topical yeah. <laughs> um now is there anything else you guys want to put up on the board um otherwise we should start knocking things off the list Let's do it. So just to be clear, the robber barons, are those the same people who are like the heads of the railroads? Like, do we have the heads of the railroads on the list? Um, We, yes. Because I know it's bigger than that, but I'm just wondering if like we should just also. There were so many because they were, I guess, independent. The way I understand is that railroads were owned by independent rich business yeah the robber barons the robber barons right i see um but i think we can just call it like the heads of the rail the the railroad railroad tycoons yeah railroad tycoons there you go okay okay great let's take a quick break and we'll be right back hey i'm ryan reynolds at Mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Okay, who's to blame for the Great Railroad Strike of 1877? Is it the financial panic of 1873, lack of regulation, poor wages and greedy bosses, robber barons, John D. Rockefeller, the railroad tycoons, Thomas Scott, Gilded Age Capitalism, Pinkertons, The Barbaric Nature of Humans, The Industrial Revolution, State-Sanctioned Violence, President Rutherford B. Hayes, or Outside Agitators. I also just want to circle back the eight-hour workday we talked about. It was interesting little moment in American history. It was 1887. The Federation of Organized Trade and the Labor Union called for a national strike demanding an eight-hour workday. And with the Great Depression, kind of renewed interest there. And uh, that happened, I guess, there after the Depression. I mean, so there you after go. After the Depression. Yeah. Okay. So later. Okay. So the, like, th- it the 30s or 40s. It happened in some pockets. During the right. during the late 1800s, and then it sort of more took hold later. But okay. it, there wasn't 
So yeah. Now, off the top of my head, what are we going to fold into what or remove? Because this is a it's a tough one. It's mm-hmm. a tough list, and everything I feel deserves to be up on this board. Yeah. I don't think it's outside agitators, so no. I think we can take that off. Okay. okay. I think that's what was perhaps blamed at the time. Right. Hmm. I mean, when you talk about sending troops in and stuff like that, I would really like to take off financial panic of 73 because mm-hmm. that's maybe what sort of tripped the wire that kind of got things going. Yeah. But at the yeah. end of the day, things got really out of hand. People mm-hmm. died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think... And it was rooted in more than just... That's about uh, sort of response yeah. to the event, right. you know? Clearly, I mean, a lack of regulation is... 100%. Do, do poor wages and greedy bosses fold that into lack should, of regulation? Yes, and I feel like that should fold into someone, these actual, like either the railroad tycoons or Rockefeller himself, you okay. know, like into a more mm. specific okay. Right, yeah, them, them choosing, it is their choice to give mm-hmm. poor wages. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Gilded age capitalism. Pinkertons, come on. God. I, can we tie Pinkertons into state-sanctioned violence, or is that too separate? No, I, I I think for our purposes, we can. Sure. Okay. Um, I think that we can also take President Rutherford B. Hayes out, off the board. He had just become president in 1877. Okay. I mean. Brutal decision to send 60,000 troops, though. No, no. I know. That's the thing. Yeah, I feel like. Because well, it doesn't matter Maybe we how. can tie it into state-sanctioned violence. Like, if he's the one yeah, who's ordering right. the troops, it's like, it's his fault. It's also the fact that. It's a regulation thing also, like that this is allowed legally to go mm-hmm. send in all of these troops and like to hire Pinkertons to go union bust and like right. kill people. So, yeah, I don't want to let the government off the hook, but maybe we can like condense it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I what agree. do we do then? Do we keep Hayes on for now or are we Well, I think him? we're going to fold him into the state sanctioned violence okay. and yeah. okay. the lack of regulation. We okay. can probably fold the tycoons and Scott and the barons and Rockefeller. Yeah, where did that get folded? Oh, okay, so... We want to call that just railroad tycoons? Yeah, we'll fold Scott into the railroad tycoons because he was one of uh, uh, others. Okay, and what about Rockefeller? Same? Into the robber barons. Okay. Yeah. Because they were all doing the same thing, just trying to create a monopoly. Right. We have two big ones on here, the the um, Industrial Revolution and this like barbaric nature of humans. Right. <laughs> Well, we all know how I feel about the barbaric nature, so I'll, I'll, you can take it off. Yeah. I mean, you can leave it on. You can leave it on. But I will say it's like if we are all barbaric, but only some of us are like choosing to kill people, like the people who are fighting for their low wages, I mm-hmm. think should be let off the hook. Mm-hmm. No, it's a little mm-hmm. too simple. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think we Just, can take that off. We can off take the it off. What about in the Industrial Revolution? It's, I think it's sort of like the financial panic of 1873 where it like caused circumstances. Right, but right. right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get that out okay. of there. Okay, so now we're... Now yeah, we're, this feels good. This feels like into, we're honing yeah, in here. The robber barons, we've got the railroad tycoons, the gilded age capitalism, and state-sanctioned violence. And now we have to pick... I think we've already sent Gilded Age capitalism to Alarmist Gel, haven't Have we? we? Or is has it just been old fashioned? This capitalism? was was this the flooding of the the valley in in Pennsylvania? Mm. Mm, it was maybe. around a similar time. It was around the similar time yeah. we were we were mad at those because there were other robber barons. <laughs> we got mad who at capitalism. Yeah, yes, it do. was because they were yeah. all these Gilded Age guys who were like building their yeah. fancy cabin up and I like, believe not, it was Carnegie yes. or, or Vanderbilt. Yeah. Who yes, owned. it was the same guys. It's just these yeah. guys. Same guys. And then they have these museums so, everywhere and theaters. Anyway. Here's what I think. I think uh, this is just tell me what you think. Kay. I think we should send the robber barons to the alarmist jail, and I think we should s- slap state sanctioned violence. Wow. Hmm. How do we feel about that? Just putting it out there. Let's just put that a jacket on. It doesn't feel. It feels those are my top two. Also. Okay. I, and like it, I go back and forth between those robber barons. It, it feels like the state-sanctioned violence was a response. Yes. Not to say that it, it is correct, because if there wasn't state-sanctioned violence, perhaps 
Here's my question. Who yeah. is to blame for what? Who is to blame right. for the killings? Who is to blame for this whole incident occurring? Like, who is to blame for the violence? Because it feels like the fact that a lot of people died from this is because of state-sanctioned violence. Right. But why did these strikes happen in the first place? Because of the robbery. Yes, I think that that's my kind of thinking of it. It's like we're yeah. looking at who, what or who made responsible situation where these strikes could were even possible or, or necessary. Right. Then it's, yeah, I, I, think, I think robber barons. Then it's the robber barons, right? right? So it's like if wages were fair, if working conditions were good, mm-hmm. then there would not have been the need of a strike. Right. Right. And I would I would go, go a step further and say, you know, if we're now focusing in on who was to blame for the conditions that led to this strike, mm-hmm. then you, you don't want to, I mean, I think the state-sanctioned violence or that's more of the reaction to, right? right? Um, the events Mm -hmm. and so maybe we can slap something else then only because you know yes those were that was Mm -hmm. a terrible reaction yes Mm -hmm. you know this was a this Mm -hmm. was obviously the wrong way to handle this situation but at the same time if what we're focusing in is on Mm -hmm. is specifically Mm -hmm. what led to the conditions which led to the strike then um you know you'd probably want to go back to scott or one of the railroad tycoons maybe get a name in there I yeah. always like to have a get like an actual person. But uh, barons and tycoons seem kind of similar, you know, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like a synonym almost. Yeah. So it's like I would be great to slap a guy. Here, here's what I, I'll say. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just Alexander Thomas Scott. Scott. Yeah, yeah. Thomas, Thomas Scott. <laughs> um, okay, Pennsylvania Railroad president. All right, I think that's good for now. I feel like we'll talk to a. a <laughs> An expert. Yeah. Maybe they'll say we're totally wrong. <laughs> That's cool. But it won't be the first time and it won't be the last that that happens. Um, okay, I'm going to call it. Thomas Scott, you're getting the big slap. Robber barons, you're going to the alarmist jail. Okay. And that's that. I uh, guess we... How, how do we feel? I think I'm a little upset. <laughs> okay. Let's dig in. Un- unpack that for us. No, I just... it's It's unsettling because... It feels like one of the one of these historical things that we come across or situations and tragedies we come across that is just so you just change the the date and it feels like it could have been yesterday. Mm -hmm. It's still Uh, it's sad that just like we're doing this. This all just kind of like fizzled out. Yeah. And now it's still happening. You know, like the circumstances are different. but It's like the same. It's the same thing. It's that pressure of like the wages need to be this low for for the country. Like you know, it's just things are so bad, and it's so painful that the people who are suffering the most face the worst consequences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And what you were saying, Ali, before is so true. It's like then there's this powerful narrative of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and like you, you know you have to suffer. You gotta you know suffer and work hard, and mm-hmm. that's and yes, like to a degree that that's true. But at the same point, it's like that doesn't have to be true. We could have a broader welfare system. We could have th- systems in place to help people. So or they, even, they don't they can live with dignity, even though they don't produce in a marketplace um, to the degree that others do. Completely. Just these, you know, railroad, the presidents of the companies, the CEOs, they could just choose to give higher wages. Right. right. Like mm-hmm. we don't even need a welfare state. Honestly, I mean, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But we don't I, I think we don't Wait, even need what to. What are ex- you saying? Hang on a second. <laughs> you trying to take people's social security away? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> coming for you, um, old people. Um, <laughs> um, no, I'm just saying nobody should be on welfare if they have a job. So it's like no one working at a Walmart yeah, or yeah, a Starbucks yeah. or an Amazon. Like we we just – these companies can can afford to pay higher right. wages. Right. Yeah. And that's the heartbreaking part. Right. Well, Captain Alley, thank you so much for joining us today and helping us get to the bottom of the great railroad strike of 1877. It was depressing, but I will say it was such a joy to be here. This, mm. I had so much fun with you guys, and it's so <laughs> you're so smart, and like just digging into this was really, uh, really cool. So thank you're you. The, for you're the first yeah. person who's ever called us that. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> we will re- you will go down in history, and we will remember you. Yeah. You'll be back. <laughs> You'll be back. <laughs> In the aftermath of the strike, 
While the 1877 railroad strike was not an immediate success for workers and industrialists continued to cut wages and break unions, all was not lost for the labor movement. The strike marked the beginning of a shift in public sympathy for the workers' plight in America. Within two years, railroad companies began introducing reforms, and trade unions developed a new level of cohesion and momentum. Today, the labor movement continues to fight for workers' rights, most recently with the significant unionizing victories for Amazon and Starbucks employees. Visit our website and let us know who you think is to blame at www.thealarmistpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at The Alarmist Podcast and on Twitter at Alarmist The. You can also send us your thoughts via email to thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was produced and engineered by Clayton Early with fact-checking by Chris Smith and editing by Molly Hockey. Thank you to our associate producer and researcher, Alex Paul. The Alarmist is executive produced by Rebecca Delgado-Smith and the Erios Network. Tune in next week. We'll be discussing the Seawall Ferry Disaster. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 